Welcome, everybody, to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 236. Recap on Twitter Spaces. We'll do some introductions, and then we'll just jump into the newsletter. I will post a few different tweets from the Optech account that are relevant to this discussion so folks can follow along. But otherwise, you can go to bitcoinops.org and find the latest version of the newsletter, 236, which we'll be going through today. I'm Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and also executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source work. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs and contribute to Bitcoin. T-Bast? Hi, I'm Bastian. I'm working on Lightning and especially on Eclair and Phoenix. Excellent. Dan, do you want to introduce yourself and give, give some background on what you've been working on? We'll jump into your news items shortly, but maybe just a little bit of personal background, how you got here, what kind of stuff you're doing. Sure. I'm Dan. I work on the Bitcoin privacy problem. Recently, I'm focused on using pay joins to bring a base level of privacy to Bitcoin in popular use. And I'm really excited to get to share the stage with Best John, uh, Merch, and Schmitty. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us. I think we can jump into your proposal since it's the first item in the news section this week. Unless, Merch, are there any announcements before we get started? No, not that I know. Okay, Dan. Well, you had a post to the Bitcoin Dev mailing list and a proof of concept implementation around PayJoin. I think it's been a bit since we discussed pay joins, if at all, in our spaces. So maybe you can set the stage a bit about what are pay joins and what's the current status of pay join adoption, and then you can get into your proposal a bit. Does that sound fair? Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think the newsletter did a great job of summarizing what's going on. When we start without pay join, we have a what I like to call a naive transaction where you have some inputs and some outputs. Inputs are outputs of previous transactions and outputs are new outputs from this transaction. The way most people would create a Bitcoin transaction or most software would create a Bitcoin transaction would mean that all of the inputs come from the same party. And because you can assume or surveillance can assume all the inputs come from the same party, that can be used to track individuals or entities and activities across time. So we can break this by using PayJoin because PayJoin allows both the person sending a transfer and the person receiving a transfer to contribute to the same Bitcoin transaction with inputs, breaking that first heuristic. So the PayJoin concept, also known as pay to endpoint, where you pay to a interactive server instead of a static Bitcoin address was made popular around 2020, I want to say. And the first implementation of the BIP78 spec, which is the most common spec, was done by Nicholas Dorier and Andrew Camilleri for BTC Pay. So people have thought of it mostly as a solution for merchants, even though it really brings Bitcoin privacy, I think, to everyone. Because in addition to breaking this common input ownership heuristic where all the inputs of a transaction come from the same person. It's covert in that the transaction doesn't look special when you make it, or it doesn't have to, taking some assumptions into account. So it makes all of the transactions that look like they could be pay joins have a new interpretation where they might be transactions where their inputs come from the same person, or they might be created by multiple participants. 
this is all to say that adoption has been slow in my mind in large part because people think merchants are the ones who should enable pay join you've needed to have that public server open so basically btc pay servers one of very few pieces of software that allows people to receive this kind of transaction and a totally separate sets of software is able to send the pay joins and i think because software producers haven't been able to send and receive they've been reluctant to implement it so the serverless pay join spec we're finally getting past the background here was to get rid of the requirement for you to run your own server endpoint replaced with leaning on a relay so instead of running a secure server endpoint where you know i'm talking to https btcpayserver.com you can use a hub hosted at btcpayserver.com and the receiver can generate an ephemeral key a pre-shared key in the uri that makes up the endpoint the sender pays to which they can encrypt their sender payload with and get and make sure the response from the receiver is authenticated because they do that it's okay if there's a middleman. It's okay if this payload gets relayed. So we can use something called turn to have the sender and receiver talk to each other directly, to have their computers talk to each other directly. I think there are a number of improvements we could still make, and I'm curious to hear those, but that's the basic idea. You have pay join, which breaks the common input ownership heuristic, brings privacy to everyone, even those who don't necessarily pay join themselves and anyone who can connect to a relay server that yeah anyone who can connect to a relay server can pay join go ahead merch all right uh, just wanted to jump in maybe one more comment on the the background so you mentioned how standard transactions allow users or surveillance to to assume that all inputs are owned by the same owner and some of our listeners might have heard of coin joins before so in a coin join transaction or generally a transaction with multiple creators, you usually have a pattern in the outputs that makes it recognizable as being something different. The specialty or the special thing about the pay join here is since it's still predominantly a payment from one user to the other user, there's still only two outputs, one to the recipient and the change output back to the sender. And by the recipient adding more inputs, the value is increased that goes to the recipient, but the characteristic of the transaction still having two outputs doesn't really change. So for a, a surveillance that is looking at the blockchain, it, it still looks like a regular payment, indistinguishable from anything else, except that there might be more inputs and now, some of the inputs are from one wallet and some of the inputs are from the other wallet. So in a clustering approach where they assume that all inputs to transactions are owned by the same entity, they will mistakenly combine these two wallets now and think that it's only one entity instead of two entities transacting. Just, just to, to round off your explanation from earlier. So my understanding is that your new proposal now just uses existing BTC pay servers as a coordination mechanism, but then communication is directly between two wallets. Is that right? 
the proposal doesn't explicitly say you're using a BTC pay server for coordination, but that is feasible. Yeah. Any sort of wallet developer could run a relay that would let, like you said, any two wallets communicate and do this. And I see Michael listening. This came really out of a need that he brought up for bolts to pay join, where if the receiver has to run all these servers to get private withdrawal or a withdrawal at least that has some privacy between the bolt exchange and the user then it's just not going to be widely adopted t bast do you have a comment yeah thanks for explaining that i think it's a really cool proposal who who do you think will run will actually run relay servers wallet vendors potentially a few companies that work in bitcoin and how do you think wallets will expose that because you, you probably don't want wallet vendors to force a lock-in to only use their relay server especially if it's if it becomes dust at some point so you want the user to be able to pick from a list i guess but how do you envision that yeah one awesome suggestion i got was to use a distributed hash table something like hole punch or iftp's lib p2p because that relay network is kind of already up and running but i have it's a new concept for me so i'm not sure if that's compatible with http or if there's a lot of networking required on top of it when i chose to use turn that was because there was a basic library support and you can hole punch a http connection with someone relatively easily but the reason we have the reason i came up with the proposal is because I think we already have proprietary lock-in to some extent. Samurai, I think it's called Stonewall, does something really similar to what I've proposed, but without being specified. It uses Tor and the two endpoints agree on a relay to, yeah, agree on a Tor relay to do exactly what the turn relay does in this proposal. So I think a distributed hash table is probably the way to go, but a list of authenticated relays from wallets might make more sense. The other concern with open relay is that anyone could proxy their internet traffic over it. And people don't usually run public turn relays because that's cost. It's tragedy of the commons where anyone can just come and relay traffic over it. It's hard to say this is only for pay joins, which is maybe what using the public relay network that is a DHT could fix. Yeah, I'd stay away from DHTs if, if I were you. They have a lot of issues and they don't, re they don't really create, they don't really solve the issue because even with a DHT, you need to have a first node, a first root node to connect to, to then query with a DHT. And these DHTs can always be kind of manipulated. So they, they create so many issues that I'm not sure it would be the right choice here. I think that just a list of, usual vendors that people are used to would make more sense, but maybe I'm wrong. I think you could handle authentication that way. Like if, you're, if your wallet software has some authentication key that lets you use their servers, that seems more sustainable to me than something that's totally open. I'd prefer everything be open, but I just don't know how that gets sustained. So generally uh, the coordination point that the user and the merchant or counterparty use to, to create their initial connection what do they learn? They they just see an IP address or a sender at, or nothing at all? So the relay, first the receiver would ask the relay to allocate them an endpoint. So they would get the, they would know the IP address of the relay and the relay would know their IP address. And then the, they would send that allocated endpoint on the relay in the Bitcoin URI with 
the key information and the initial address to the sender out of band. The sender can then connect to the relay using that information. And so the relay would learn their IP, but the sender and the receiver would not necessarily know one another's IP addresses. And the relay could choose to run a hidden service so that if either the sender or the receiver wanted more privacy, they connect could connect to them that way and not reveal their IP address. Cool, thanks. Dan, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know as of the publishing of this newsletter and the author authoring of it in the last few days, there hadn't been much discussion yet on the mailing list. How has feedback been either on the mailing list or if folks have reached out to you out of band to provide feedback? Maybe you can comment on, on that so far. Yeah, I've gotten some feedback from reaching out directly to people. And I think a lot of the problem with the Bitcoin privacy is people don't see a way they can make money from it. So they don't have an incentive to pursue it when it comes to actual wallets. But I think a lot of the feedback has been from like Nicholas Dorier, who said, you need to simplify and make sure you use the HTTP spec if you can. I think like Bastion's saying, don't rely on DHTs, don't add complexity there. And the other thing has been to simplify the the cryptography. Because when I see, we use noise to model the encryption and authentication that's done for serverless pay join. But I think noise is still relatively unknown and people get overwhelmed by it. Noise framework, for those who don't know, is a way to describe a cryptographic protocol using a simple language for who has what keys when and what messages get sent when. And because everything is defined, you can do formal verification on it. And you can just pull one of these protocols off the shelf in the serverless pay join case, that's NNPSK0, meaning neither the sender nor the receiver have a long-term key and they pre-share a key in the first message. But I think we could even get rid of the noise NNPSK0 if you just did a Diffie-Hellman key exchange between the sender and the receiver. So you ha you'd have to wait until that key exchange was established. And then the receiver could sign the payload they sent back to the sender, which is the pay join PSBT, with the key related to their initial address to do authentication. Because I'm a little off of the original question, which is like, how has feedback been? But I think this is where the feedback has concluded to make it simpler. So if they could just use that Bitcoin address, the key related to that to make a signature, then you could do the whole protocol without introducing the new parameters and simplify. I'm not sure why, I'm not sure how to get the mailing list to get more feedback, but I'm very interested in that because I want PayJoin to be implemented everywhere. It's simple enough that it really should just work everywhere. And I just wrote a new thread today that goes into detail on how this works, which is definitely worth checking out. And what would be interesting is that I think we could also tunnel those over lightning connections so that lightning, lightning nodes could act as relays for those. They, it could even be incentivized relays if you do that over HTLCs or something like that. Maybe there's something that's interesting to explore there. Yeah, I think so. I'm really thrilled to share the stage with you because I see you working on the interactive TX protocol from time to time too. And that's, that's I think of that as kind of next generation pay join. Yeah, I haven't really thought about incentivized relays on lightning nodes. Do you have more of an idea of how that could work? Oh, it's really, it's really just an idea right now. I, I don't know if there are issues, but we, we've talked about similar things for Vortex, which is a project to do, to make all your lightning on-chain interactions be 
CoinJoins and use Interactive TX and Lightning Nodes to do that. And they need a, co a coordinator. And we realized that in theory, every Lightning Node could act as a coordinator. So I'm thinking that maybe the same could apply here to run a relay in your Lightning Node so that the number of relays is big enough. And also they are associated with re reputation because a big node has a reputation, has put some cost into running that big node. So you know that when you are using that node as a relay, you can expect a good quality of service. And also you can expect to have many other Lightning nodes available that would run the same service. So it would fix the issue of not having any relays that you can use. On, the, on how to incentivize them by paying them over Lightning, that's probably more complicated, but that's, yeah, that's something to potentially explore. At least if, it's, if you are doing those Bitcoin transactions from a Lightning wallet, then it's probably simple to do. If you are doing it only for, from a pure Bitcoin on-chain wallet, then of course Lightning integration is going to be hard. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure yet. It's just, just a thought that may be worth exploring. The lightning pairing oh, sorry. Sounds, the lightning, one more thing here. The lightning pairing sounds good also because the receiver has to sign and contribute inputs and lightning always has that reserve UTXO, at least one. So you can always pay join with that, and that seems like a good match. I'm really excited to hear you two coming up with new ideas on the fly. I have a little bit of a curveball. I've seen, I think, two or three things that used sign messages tied to Bitcoin addresses lately. Have any of you thoughts on, on BIP322, the generic signed message format? Is, is that moving forward in your mind? To be honest, I haven't looked at it much. I haven't looked at it at all. So I'm opening it for the first time and this is probably the format to use. What do you think of it if you've uh, thought of it? It seemed like a really good approach to make signing generally described for the existing and maybe forthcoming output formats. But I think that, that some people generally seem a little unhappy with, with message signing or it, it doesn't... Yeah, maybe it's the, the money thing. How are you making money off of this? Nobody really has been pushing hard enough for it. It's, it's just a little, it's been there. It looks pretty well specced, but, but it's not finished. Anyone else have anything on this topic before we move along? I think we might be done. Well, I think there's, there's a bit of kismet with our two guests today, which, which is great to have some, as Merch says, on the fly brainstorming. And hopefully this discussion that we're having here, as well as the fact that this proposal is in the Optech newsletter this week, hopefully, Dan, you can get some additional feedback and exposure on this idea from a, a wider audience. So thank you for coming on and, and describing this. You're, you're welcome to hang out and comment on the rest of the newsletter. But yeah, thank you for joining us and walking us through this. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. Our second news item for this week it harkens back to last week's newsletter where we had Val from Spiral on talking about async proof of payment when using the Lightning Network. And we sort of started on the problem statement. It was her original mailing list post that sort of started the discussion. And it was more of a solicitation for research into the issue. I think by the time that we had the recap Twitter spaces, AJ had already responded, but it was fairly fresh. We went through it just superficially, but in this newsletter, we cover it a little bit more 
in depth. I don't know. So Bastian, I, I know that we did not bring you on to discuss this item because you haven't, <laughs> you haven't taken the time to review AJ's response. Are you familiar with what Val was getting at with her solicitation into this research problem and, and what the problem is? Yes, actually, we, I discussed it with Val and we discussed it together before she sent the email. This is something, this came out because we, we knew that for async payment, we had an issue because ideally we want to make sure that the senders and receivers have to come back online as few times as possible. And right now, we've, we are losing some of the properties of lighting payments if we want receivers to generally stay offline and senders to generally stay offline. But we couldn't figure out how to fix it. And we knew that we had a hint that potentially with PTLCs, the design space gets bigger. So there, are, there may be ways to fix it. We are pretty sure that with HCLCs, there are no perfect ways to fix that. But we, we were actually too lazy to do the research ourselves. So that's why we decided to send an email to the mailing list and see if someone came up with, the, with, an idea, with a smart idea that we couldn't find ourselves. So I'm pretty happy to see that we got a response that fast and I still need to study it. But the overall idea is to be able to make sure that the recipient only has to come online when he receives a payment and doesn't have to come online a first time to create an invoice before that invoice is actually paid. So this would be a much better UX and would reduce the, the percentage of failed payments. So this would be very desirable. But the issue is how do you ensure that the LSP cannot cheat and doesn't make the sender pay another invoice that was already paid, doesn't steal funds, doesn't learn too much. So th this is a kind of worms and there are a lot of subtleties around that. But it's good that we have the beginning of a solution with AJ's proposal. Yeah, AJ mentioned two pieces of technology that we have highlighted on the Optech topics pages. So his solution involves PTLCs and signature adapters. Bastian, I, I know this is still an idea and work in progress, but what, what are PTLCs and how do we think of that versus an HTLC? And what, what can we do with a PTLC that we can't do with an HTLC with regards to this proof of payment? Yeah, okay, so right now, Lightning payments use what we call HTLCs, which means that you, the recipient has a pre-image, which is just 32 bytes. From that, they just hash it with a SHA-256, which creates a hash of that pre-image. And the hash is what you find in the invoice. And when you make a payment, you actually pay to learn the pre-image of that hash. But the issue with that is that the sender learns the pre-image of the hash, but every node that was inside the route also learns the pre-image of the hash. So it's hard after the fact to say that you were the payer for that invoice because anyone in the route can claim the same thing. So we have a way to fix that with offers, even with HCLCs, by adding a key that generated by the payer that they can use them to sign to show that they were the one paying the invoice. But there's still the issue that every node in the path learn that secret. PTLCs change are conceptually similar, but instead of using a pre-image and the SHA-256 hash of it, they use a private key and a public and an elliptic of point. And this is interesting because you can do hash functions, destroy all arithmetic, all potential arithmetic relations, but elliptic curves are 
mathematical groups so that we, we can they conserve some some of there are some operations that you can do that are conserved with elliptic curve points so that allows us to make sure that we send payments where the intermediate nodes would not learn the real secret they would learn some kind of intermediate secrets so that only the sender learns the, learns the secret for an invoice and also since we are now using elliptic curves there are potentially a lot of cool things we can do with adapter signatures, and it really opens up the design space for new ideas, for things that are just not possible to do when we pass the thing, when we pass our data into a hash function. So we don't know yet exactly all the things we can do. There's a lot of new things we haven't explored. So that's why PTLCs are exciting because they will unblock a new wave of innovation on what we can do with lightning payments. As one of the, oh, go ahead, Merch. I think that was the best explanation of PTLCs I've heard in forever. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I just wanted to say that mainly. But PTLCs, of course, come or have been in the works for quite a while. They are based on the new Schnorr signature standard, the same that also is used in Page Taproot. And I think they can even coexist in parallel to HTLCs. Although if you make a PTLC payment, you you need to have it supported along every hop of the route. <clears throat> Bastian, as one of the prominent Lightning developers and, and working on one of the Lightning implementations, what is your perspective on the status of PTLCs and the feasibility of that coming to fruition and, and potential timeframes? I know that's something that folks might, might be curious about. It's going to be done in two weeks. No, more, more seriously, we, <laughs> we, know, we know how to do it. We currently have good designs on how to do a first version of PTLCs that works and that doesn't require too many additional trade-offs on the, on the Lightning State machines. So we have that design somewhat specced, but there are so many things that we are all working on right now that it will take quite a while before we get there. Also, one of the things we need is that the first step before PTLCs is to change the funding outputs of Lightning channels to use Taproot and Music2. And for that, we actually need LibSecP to ship a version, a final version, or at least a 1.0 version of Music2, which is getting closer, but is not available yet. So that is a first dependency that we are blocked on. And actually changing the funding of Lightning channels is really just the first step and a simpler step than adding PTLCs. Because even though PTLCs conceptually use the same flow as HTLCs, they require changing all of our code because the messages that we will exchange and the way we will do signatures will change to use adapter signatures. So it's really a huge change in, the, in every implementation and in what we store in our DBs. So it's gonna take a while to be implemented even though we know that we know how to do it, but it's gonna take a while. And for the class side, we are first focusing on finishing dual funding, liquidity ads, and splicing, which are also, and offers as well, which are also very big features. So we will only have dev time uh, to work on PTLCs after that. So I would expect, yeah, maybe by the end of 2023, we would be starting to work on it, but I don't know exactly when we'll be able to ship something. That's fair. That, that's good insight to, to sort of how you're thinking about roadmaps in terms of features for Lightning. Merch, I, I know there's the newsletter got into some of the details of AJ's proposal. I don't know that I or Bastian can comment on some of the 
signature nonces and, and things like that. Is that is that something that you feel comfortable commenting on or should we def- defer listeners to read the newsletter and, and jump into the original source material in AJ's posts? I, I think for those listeners that are interested in, in the exact details, going to the post directly is probably better. And otherwise, I think we'll probably get back to this when it gets implemented. Generally, I think the the breakthrough here is we sort of semi-trust the LSP to to put out invoices in our name, but they can't really do much shenanigans because the payment still has to be redeemed by us. And we have now a way on the receiver side to distinguish whether an invoice has been reused, in this case, via the nonce. So a few of the problems that were stated in the in the writing prompt or in the in the research question are seem to get resolved with this proposal so yeah i think that it's still sort of getting evaluated by by val and i guess tbest and other people that were asking for the solution so i'm sure it will be in one of the next few newsletters again when when the discussion progresses Excellent. Well, I think we can wrap up that news item and move on to notable code and documentation changes, review some PRs. Sound good? All right. Well, the first one here for this week is Bitcoin Core 26471, which reduces the default mempool capacity to five megabytes from 300 when a node operator is running in blocks only mode. Merch, why, why would I want such a small mempool capacity when I'm running in blocks only mode? So when you're running in blocks-only mode, you're running a node that does not participate in the gossip, in the transaction gossip. It will only try to receive the new blocks. So it will catch up to the chain state. It will also forward those blocks potentially to its peers, but it will not keep all the unconfirmed transactions around. So really the mempool being the short-term memory for for unconfirmed transactions means that you don't really need it when you're only participating in the block relay. So the author of this PR noticed that essentially blocks-only nodes were still putting aside memory to, to keep a mempool, but they didn't actually request any transactions from their peers. So... Instead, this memory is freed up and is, for example, available to be used towards DB cache and improve the initial synchronization. But yeah, we don't really need a mempool if we don't keep unconfirmed transactions. That's the point. Okay, so so that makes sense. And I, I guess the follow up question would be if I'm in blocks only, then why do I need any memory allocated to the mempool? What's the point of having the five megabyte versus something like zero? Well, A, you still can relay your own transactions. So when you would try to send something, it would it would be bad for your privacy because if you're in blocks only mode, but sending a transaction, then clearly either you have whitelisted the peer that you got it from, or it's your own, but you could theoretically send a transaction and then it has to go somewhere and it goes to your mempool. So we do actually keep a mempool. It's just very, very small and sparse. The other situation where you might need a mempool is 
if there is a chain fork, because two miners find a block at the same height, then, and you were on the block that ended up being the stale chain tip, you would reorganize. And when you reorganize, actually transactions are put back into the mempool before the new block is applied. So in that case, you would not re-download everything from, from peers, but you, you would stuff it into your mempool temporarily. Five megabytes should be enough for a block or two. So I think that might have been the motivation to keep five. Okay, that makes sense. The, the most practical reason being you need to submit your own transaction to the mempool. So that's why not to have zero. And then the scenario you mentioned where there's a reorg and you don't have to then re-download all those transactions since the transactions from that reorg block would be in your mempool to create a future block. Okay, that makes sense. Next PR is another Bitcoin Core PR. 23.395, adding a shutdown notify configuration option to Bitcoin D. And what that allows is some customizability. If you want to run some script or, or dump some data into a log file or something like that, when your Bitcoin D shuts down, you can provide the command that's to be run during shutdown using this option. Um, and there's no guarantees that this will run, especially during an unexpected shutdown, I guess would be the scenario where if this process is killed, then if Bitcoin D is killed, then you wouldn't have the script run. But during normal shutdown operations, that command could be run to, to do log dumps or any such cleanup that you would need, depending on what you're doing as a node operator. Merch, any thoughts on shutdown notify? Sounds useful. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And we have a trio of Eclair PRs here. And the author of some of those is Bastion. So I think it would make sense for him to outline exactly what's going on in these next three PRs. Yeah, sure. So the first two are really small PRs around Keysend. So for people who don't know, Keysend is a somewhat hacky way of paying someone who didn't, didn't give you an invoice by just generating the pre-image on the payer side. It's a way to potentially accept donation without having the receiver need to needing to generate anything. But the, the issue with Keysend is that it was not properly specified. So it, it, it was LND implemented it first and then C-Lightning reverse engineered the code to kind of figure, figure out the specification. And then at some point, the LDK team wrote a bleep to try to specify what, what, what the behavior that people relied on was. But we didn't realize that even in that specification, we there's nothing saying that Keysend doesn't work with another feature of Lightning that's called Payment Secret. And Eclair was actually sending using Payment Secrets with Keysend. And Payment Payment Secret is also something that became that we made mandatory in Eclair and is mandatory in other implementations as well since since a while because it protects against a specific fee stealing attack from the next to last node in a route. So we didn't realize that Eclair actually, Eclair's Keysend support actually didn't work with other implementations because of that. So we made a few changes to remove the payment secret from Keysend usage and make it compatible again with LND and CLN. So th th those are really small PRs. The, um, the next, and yeah. Bastion, I'm, I'm curious just as to how you think about something. So the standardization, I think, a lot of people are familiar with bolts, but maybe less so with blips. So how, how does one think about bolts versus blips? 
Okay, so bolts are lightning features that everyone should implement or that everyone needs to at some point implement for the network to work correctly and not be fragmented too much and for users to be able to easily use lightning. Whereas blips are optional features that don't need at all to be implemented by everyone, kind of plugin features, if you will, but are still useful to document, to specify, so that if multiple implementations or multiple wallets want to depend on it, they, are, they can be sure that they are implementing the same thing and can easily be cross-compatible. So that's why we introduced blips. And the issue with Keysen is that soon after it was implemented, we realized that it had a lot of limitations and it's, it's really not something we want to push because it's, it has a lot of cases where it just doesn't work well. And Lightning Lab's idea was to replace that by something they call AMP. And this one has a pending PR on the Bolt, but it is still a, I think it still has only been implemented by LND and it kind of conflicts with offers. And we're not sure if we need both or if both make sense or if we want only one of them. So that, that's why Keysend has been semi-abandoned, but is still widely used, which makes it quite a weird feature that is fully specified, widely used, but not very well tested across implementations. So the payment secrets, um, it sounds to me like payment secrets should be completely tangential to Keysense and especially useful in the context of Keysense. How come that it actually breaks the other implementations when you send one? It, it seems like the logical place for it to appear. Re really just because they, they have checks in their code where they, on the sending side, they don't send a payment secret because there's a, payment secrets are usually something that you find in the invoice. So when you're making a key send payment, you have no invoice. So you have to generate the payment secret yourself or you can just use, what we did was reuse the pre-image as a payment secret, but the other implementations did not send one. And I think it's okay because since it's, there's no issues as long as you don't use KeySend with MPP, and if you use keys with multi-part payments, but if you use Keysend with multi-part payments, you have a ton of other issues anyway, so, so, so we can ignore that. So that's why senders don't actually need to use a payment secret. But in Eclair, we had made it mandatory, so we rejected all payments that did not contain a payment secret, even Keysend payments. So that's what we relaxed. It doesn't hurt to send a payment secret in a Keysend payment, but we also realized that LND and C-Lightning actively reject, or maybe not both of them, but at least one of them actively reject a key send payment if it contains a payment secret, whereas they could just ignore it. So we decided to just drop all payment secrets from anything that we do with key send in Eclair so that we're sure that we're compatible even with all the LND nodes out there. Cool. Thanks for clarifying. I think that's good for the first two Eclair PRs. Do you want to jump into 2540? Okay, yeah, this one is a big one. So we started working on splicing. Splicing is a very interesting feature for Lightning because right now, when, when you open a, a Lightning channel, it has a given capacity, but you cannot increase nor decrease that capacity. You have to close the channel, which costs one on-chain transaction, and then open another one. And the idea of splicing is to just combine these two. Basically, you make, once you have an open, an open channel, you can do a new transaction that will increase its capacity 
or decreased capacity. And this is done atomically, and this is done much more efficiently than actually closing the channel and reopening it. So that, that's something that's really desirable, but it's really a complex feature because once you start doing that, you have to, once you have a splice transaction that, is, that has been negotiated, has been published, but is not confirmed yet, you actually have two different versions of a channel's commitment with different capacities. So you have some HTLCs that would be valid in both, but some HTLCs that would be valid in only one of them, and you want to actually reject those because otherwise you could have an issue if, if one where it's, in, where it's not compatible confirms. So there is a big change in the data model that in the state machine that you have to implement for splicing to actually let the channel handle multiple virtual channel states. And that is quite a huge change in that potentially opens a lot of issues when a channel can be force closed. So it requires a lot of changes into the channel state machine, which is the most important part of a lightning implementation. So we started working on that early to make sure that we find the right data model to be able to implement a splicing and potentially other features that look like splicing in the future. But it is something that takes a while. And this first PR, is us actually working on that data model. We still have new changes that we want to push. And what's important is that whenever we make a change and whenever any Lightning implementation makes a change to its internal channel data model, you have to migrate the data of existing channels. And that's non-trivial and you still want old nodes to be able to easily upgrade. So you have to write those migrations and properly test them. So you want to minimize them as much as possible. You don't want to have too many versions of your data that you have to, to migrate. So we are trying to spend time finalizing a good data model so that we only have to migrate the data once. And this, is, this creates quite a lot of headache, especially combined with zero confirmation, because combining splicing with zero confirmation channels just opens a lot of potential issues when an attacker may want to force close. So that's something that may be interesting for other implementation when implementations when they start looking at splicing is that they want to think hard about the interactions with zero conf because they are non-trivial and have quite a huge impact on your on your code. So make sure that you correctly test all of these things. In the newsletter, we point to a draft pull request that would add experimental splicing support. Can you explain a bit about the process of activating, if you will, splicing? Is that something that all implementations need in order for it to be production ready? Or are there just a couple implementation, lightning implementations that need to support splicing? Or how does that look? Ideally, we want all implementations to support it as soon as possible because it lets an operator pay less on-chain fees to manage their liquidity, which is really important if you want to run a big, a big LSP or be an important node operator. But in the short term, what we realized is that we can actually start experimenting with Phoenix and start experimenting by adding splicing to Phoenix. Since Phoenix only connects to our node, it lets us ship a first version of splicing before the spec is actually completely done. There's also another simplification with using it in Phoenix is that all the channels are private. And some of the complexities of splicing also come from how you deal with the announcements, how do you deal with the fact that you are going to tell the network that this channel, even though the outpoint has been spent on chain, has not been closed. It just has been changed. Its capacity has been changed 
but you should still keep it in your graph for pathfinding. So by starting to and implementing it only for Phoenix and Eclair, this lets us start with a simpler version of splicing, see how it behaves in the world, find potential issues in the specification. And the goal is to feed that back into the specification process so that we eventually find a good, a good splice specification that everyone implements. And I know that C-Lightning is also working on implementing splices, but they are directly trying to implement the whole thing. And I don't think they have an easy way to test it in the wild with mobile wallets like we do. So I think our experimentation is going to be useful for everyone. So we, our goal is to be able to ship this year a version of Phoenix that will have splicing built in, see what issues arise, what things can be improved, feed that back into the specification, and then converge on a final public specification and implement that in both C-Lightning Eclair and hopefully LDK and LND. For folks that aren't familiar, the Phoenix wallet is a Bitcoin wallet that's native Lightning support on mobile. And so it sounds like because that's powered by Eclair and because of the private unannounced channels that actually enables you to do some of the experimentation around splicing. So that's pretty cool. Merch, any thoughts on these Eclair PRs? No, man. I, I don't really know much about Lightning, you know? Good thing we have the expert then. All right, we can jump into the next PR here from LND 7231. I know earlier in the conversation, I think we talked about BIP 322 and message signing. And it looks like LND is doing some message signing of its own. So it looks like for pay to public key hash, the sign message is compatible with the Bitcoin Core version of sign message. And then they've also added capabilities to sign for native SegWit as well as wrapped SegWit addresses, and then also have a little workaround for actually using pay to taproot addresses and being able to sign and verify messages for all these different address types. Merch, have you dug into this? Is, is Are they just going off and, and implementing signed message outside of BIP322? Or what are your thoughts on what's going on here? I have, well, that was part of the prompt why I asked my question earlier. I, th I think maybe because the work on BIP322 has lost momentum a little bit that now people are starting to come up with multiple schemes around signing messages. I know that there's others that have ways of signing messages already. Um, and well, yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure how, how compatible this is with BIP322. If they use the same format as the old message signing, I think it is not. So eventually, maybe people need to have multiple ways of trying to interpret message signatures. And that's that's kind of, you know, when there's five standards for something, that's usually a little suboptimal. What is the, the obviously, there's some use cases, and I think we've discussed this in the past about why you would need sign and verify message functionality. I'm curious if there's a lightning specific use case, which is causing L&D to, to move ahead with this. Are, are you aware of the motivation for wanting to implement this in L&D? I mean, it's generally nice to be able to authenticate a message as being signed by the recipient and not needing to establish another identity. So if you can just have a signature that obviously is from the same holder of the private key to an address as the address stated on an invoice, 
that can be useful to just skip other ways of of establishing identity and and going forth with with a I don't know another sender and receiver interaction like moving to a lightning payment instead of an on-chain payment or coordinating a pay join things like that so I I see uses for for sent messages another big one of course being proof of reserves but yeah I I guess it's big and big enough and complex enough that it would need some some push and maybe a group of people that are interested in getting it. And it just seems, I mean, the the BIP three twenty two proposal is from twenty eighteen, I think, so five years old now. I guess it just hasn't gotten the momentum. Next two PRs from the newsletter are both from LDK project. The first one is adding the ability to set a per payment as opposed to global minimum final CLTV expiry value. Bastian, since we have you on here, I know LDK is not a, a project that you're that you're active on, but in terms of CLTV expiries, what is that and what is the advantage of setting that on a per payment basis versus global? Okay, so you when you are when you create an invoice, you specify how fine the future you expect the HTLC you receive to be. Because when you receive an HTLC and you have a final node, if you want to fulfill it, you want to make sure that the other node cannot, that the HTLC will not time out before the, will not time out too soon. Because otherwise there's a potential attack. If for example, you're sending me an HTLC that expires in one block, I'm, I'm getting your HTLC, I have a pre-image, so I'm giving you the pre-image. But then you are not acknowledging that message and you just, you get the pre-image so you can forward that back to the people who sent you the HTLC in the first place so that you get paid for that HTLC, but then you force close. And since the HTLC expires in one block, maybe you're going to be able to also claim that HTLC on-chain from the commitment transaction. So I gave you a pre-image, you got paid for it, but I did not get paid for it. So we want to avoid that by making sure that the HTLCs, when you are the final recipient and you receive them, expire far away in the future so that you're sure that if there is a force close happening, you are going to be able to claim that on-chain. So you have to use something that's bigger than one block. So you usually have a node, a setting that applies by default to all of your payments. But for, for some payments, maybe for payments that are big enough, you want to use a higher expiry because the, you have more funds at risk. So it makes sense to be able to customize it if a user wants to customize it on a per payment basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And it's on a per payment basis. So I guess if it, you, you gave the example of the size or the amount of the, the payment being a factor, but I suppose also you could set these based on some other meat space trust that you, you may have in, in a counterparty. Is that right as well? Yeah, exactly. Or if, for example, you are delivering a physical good in exchange for that payment, you potentially need to check with your warehouse and you potentially need more than 10 minutes or even more than an hour to check and make sure that you can claim that payment. So in that case, you really need to have an expiry that's far enough in the future to give you time to do that. Merch, any comments? Nope. All right. One more LDK PR for this week, which is 1860 adding support for channels using anchor outputs. I guess short but sweet description, TBAST is, is giving it 100%. 
I guess I am not very up to date on which lightning libraries and implementations support what, but I was, I think I was under the impression that anchor outputs were already rolled out to all the major libraries and implementations. So, but I guess, but I guess not. T-Best, can you comment on that? Yeah. So actually it's not as widely available as we'd like. It's been implemented and shipped in both LND and Eclair for, I think, more than a year now, but with Anchor Outputs, there's actually a twist. There are two versions of Anchor Outputs, and one of them is unsafe, is not safe, and shouldn't be used. And But the issue is that the other one, the good one that you should use, really requires you to be able to do some fee bumping with on-chain wallet inputs. And the thing still has not fit support for that version. And that means that right now, only LND, Eclair, and now LDK actually support the Anchor Outputs version that we want people to use. So it's been taking a while to propagate across the network. So it's really good to see that LDK has an initial version. And Rusty said that C-Lightning should have it by the next release or the release, sorry, or by the release after that. So it's even though it's something that we've talked about for quite a long time, it's still not as widely available as we'd like. So it's good to see any effort that go into that direction or making a core output safer. Because even, even when you have initial support for anchor output, your fee bumping logic can potentially be far from optimal and open to attacks. And the fee bumping logic that is associated with anchor outputs is really annoying, really complex to get right, and really hits the limit of what Bitcoin fee bumping can do. So there's still a lot of work that can be done there to make it better. Thanks for that commentary. Perfect. Merch, any thoughts on this final PR? And if anybody wants to have a comment on, on that, that PR or anything else we've talked about in this discussion, feel free to request speaker access as well. Yeah, it's kind of funny to see how some topics are in discussion for years and years, and then you actually realize that they're still not deployed on the network. And there's actually like all these these processes that go on in the background, and eventually they they lead to things landing in the protocol, landing in the implementations. Maybe in the last week or so, I've, I've seen a few comments on, on how we don't need to change anything about Bitcoin anymore because it's already perfect. And it, 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 it's just funny to me because protocol development is sort of a two decades thing. You, you start with a very small kernel that just works and then you keep adding little features and over a long time you have to arrange all these things these little parts to fit together to build up this big set of features to to make everything work and this is just an example of that we we know that there's issues around when the mempool gets or a block space gets to sought after with with closing a lot of lightning channels and all these discussions around mempool policies, anchor outputs, fee bumping, V3 transactions, ephemeral anchors, all, all these topics that we've had in the last few months, they, they actually are all just mostly around trying to resolve these issues. And yet we, we don't even have the initial anchor outputs proposal landed in all the implementation sets. It's, it's kind of an interesting divergence. We did actually have one question on Twitter, and it comes from Johnny, who I think is in the space now. And his question is, is anyone aware of other wallets 
which have already implemented some form of signed message for pay to tap root addresses. So I think that's referencing the PR from LND that had the signed message for a pay to tap root, even though it was a, a bit of a workaround. Merch, are you aware of any other signed message? From wallets? the top of my head, no. Okay. I don't see any other speaker requests at the moment, so I think we could probably wrap up. I want to thank T-Bast and Dan for joining us and discussing, discussing the news items this week. Thank you guys for your time. I think it's great to get insights from the, the authors of these proposals and, and authors of the PRs to describe the PRs, so it's super valuable to have you guys on. Thank you for your time. Oh, we do have one re speaker request here. Let's see. Sun Farms is back. Sun Farms, did you have a question? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Somehow still new to Bitcoin. Not, not really, but I have a question. I have a challenge. on. I'm trying to set up a lightning node. I don't know if this is a good forum to just ask my question. It's on lightning. Would that be fine? Uh, give it a shot. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to set up. I, I've been able to successfully set up my lightning or call lightning i used call lightning and i want to i okay my first question is this i noticed on v bitcoin v22 that's version 22 you can actually perform dump private key right when you do dump private key you can see the private key of an address of a bitcoin address but on higher versions like v23 that function was removed. So how, my question is, is how else can one get the private key of an address if that function has been removed on V23? Because I had to install V23, I honestly, because, because of I was unable to get the private key of some addresses that I created on the, on the, on my own node, I had to uninstall this. Yeah. Yeah, that's my question. First question. Yeah, I think from the style of question, that might be a better fit for Bitcoin Stack Exchange. In this particular case, yes, the dump private key was removed and you can now dump a descriptor, but not single keys anymore for the new styles of wallets. I think in 23.0, wallets generally started creating descriptor wallets instead of old style wallets. So that's, that's the issue you're bumping in. There are very few reasons why you would ever want to dump private keys directly. So yeah. Anyway, I, I think maybe write us a question on Bitcoin Stack Exchange. I'm sure somebody will pick it up. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Thanks again to our special guest. Thanks to my co-host Merch. And, and thank you all for joining and, and putting some of your time and attention towards Bitcoin and, and Lightning developments. Thanks for having us. Cheers. Cheers. See you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Cheers.